Please turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This will be a reference point for us throughout the new series of sermons, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. But then after reading verses 22 and 23 of Galatians 5, we will turn over to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We will be looking at um, context of those two verses in Galatians 5, so you probably will want to keep your finger there even when we turn over to 1 John. This is God's word. Do not ever take it lightly that God has spoken to us and given us his written word that we might know him and that we might know how we may know him. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then from chapter 4 of 1 John, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Just from my perspective, as I look around, it seems to be that we are living in an age of growing apostasy in the church. Ages like this have come and gone through the history of the church, but we seem to be in a time period where people are falling away from profession of faith in an unprecedented, in at least in our lifetimes, an unprecedented way. As the culture around us has become more resistant and even hostile to what we believe, to our ethics, our morals, and our doctrine, there seems to be an increasing number of church leaders, church celebrities, and ordinary church members that are falling into prolonged, unrepentant sin, and many of those are even abandoning the teachings of Christ and of Scripture. I'm sure that many of us know and maybe have somebody very close to us in our family or a friend who made a profession of faith in the past, seemed to walk consistently with that profession of faith, but we've watched them walk away from the church and walk away from Christ. It's a special, deep kind of grief that believers know. When we see this happen, it shakes our faith, doesn't it? It makes us question our theology sometimes. Sometimes it makes us wonder about the other professing Christians around us. Are some of them 
only pretending? Are some of them destined to walk away? And of course, it comes home to us as well. Is it possible that we could one day walk away from Christ and reject the faith? Is that possible? We in this day of modern technology and medical technology especially, we have the ability to do DNA testing for paternity testing, to be able to tell, take the DNA from a child and the two parents that are supposed to be the, the child's parents, and we can do paternity testing to determine whether that child is biologically born of those two human beings. Wouldn't it be convenient if we had spiritual paternity testing? If we were able somehow to test to see whether we are truly born of God, whether we're born again, whether we have been given new birth and are new creatures in Christ. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have that kind of assurance? Well, there is no test for that, but we are beginning a study that's going to take us for the next two and a half months. We're going to be looking at the nine fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists there in Galatians 5. And it's my contention that this list of characteristics of a born-again believer that are given there by Paul, those are meant to be a test to determine our paternity, to, to, to determine who is our father, to determine whether we are truly born again. It is a spiritual paternity test. Do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians because they were going through some struggles that are very close to this issue. They had, been, they had the gospel preached to them. They had believed that by faith alone, by grace alone, they had been forgiven of their sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But false teachers had come into those, that church or those churches and the false teachers had said, well, even though you are saved by faith, you still need to keep the law. And so it's not just believing, yes, Jesus had to die for your sins, but you still have to keep the law in order to be acceptable to God. You still have to keep the law, the law of God, in order to be right with God. And this is a... I'm sure what they were addressing was that some of the believers, we, we know it in our own experience, were saying, well, if Jesus died for my sins, he not only died for my sins of yesterday, he not only died for the sins I'm committing now, but Jesus died for all the sins I'm going to commit in the future. He's paid the price. God's wrath has been poured out on those sins. I'm home free. Why would I need to be good? Why would I, do I even have to worry about keeping the law because Jesus kept the law for me? Why do I have to worry about sinning in my life if Jesus has already died and paid the price for those sins? This is a dilemma that the church has always faced. Why be good if you're saved by grace alone? What, role, what, what do we really need to keep the law if we're saved by grace if Jesus has done it for us? The church has always tried to walk that narrow path, not falling off the path to one side of saying that we are saved by grace and keeping the law, in other words, what we call legalism, that it's 
partly dependent upon us to do good things in order to be acceptable to God. That's a false gospel. That's contrary to the true gospel. That's one side of the narrow path that you can fall, the ditch you can fall into and land in heresy. Or the other side of the path is lawlessness, saying that it doesn't matter if you are good. It doesn't matter if you try to keep the law. You can live any way you want to live because it's all by grace. We call that in the history of the church antinomianism, in other words, being against the law or lawlessness. What Paul is trying to teach us in Galatians chapter 5 is that the way of Christ is neither one of those ways. The way of Christ is how we both are saved by grace and also sanctified by grace. That it's all the work of God in us, and we know that God is working in us because we bear spiritual fruit. The spiritual fruit that Paul lists here in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, are evidences of spiritual life. They are evidences that you have been born again. Paul describes the way to true obedience in a relational way, in verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, it's about who you know. It's about who's walking with you. It's about who you are in right relationship with. And Jesus, when he departed this earth, he said, I will send to you another helper. I will send to you a comforter. I will send to you the Spirit of God to be in you, to be with you, to lead you in my ways. This obedience that Paul is describing in Galatians 5 is the kind of obedience that flows out of who you know and who you love. It's all about your desires. He says here earlier in chapter 5, again, if you're still back in Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the flesh. And what Paul means by the flesh, anytime he writes about the flesh in the New Testament, he's talking about the nature that we are born with, the fallen nature, the nature that is under the curse, human nature, but human nature that is enslaved to sin. Human nature, as he describes it in the book of Romans, that is hostile towards God instead of loving towards God. The sinful nature that we are born with that cannot please God. The nature that loves self instead of God. That's the flesh. And so in verses 19 through 21 of Galatians 5, he lists what he calls the works of the flesh. In other, in other words, the flesh desires certain things and works to obtain them. And here are the works that flow out of those desires. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's what the flesh desires. That's what the flesh produces of its own efforts because of its self-centered, self-exalting, selfish nature. It's interesting, Paul doesn't list every sin but he does hit on four categories of sin in that long list. He hits four categories of sin that are going to sound very relevant to us today. He begins with a list of sexual sins. 
Secondly, he talks about the sins of idolatry and false religion. Thirdly, he talks about the sins that bring conflict and broken relationships in our lives. And then the fourth categories are sins of overindulgence. And that is what we see are the works of the flesh all around us every day. And there is a warning. Paul concludes that list of the works of the old nature, the works of the flesh, with a warning for everybody in every age. He says in verse 21, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. I used to be like that. I still commit some of those sins in that list. But he's talking about those who are unrepentant in those sins. Those who are still desiring that lifestyle and living for that lifestyle, that self-centered life. Those who are unrepentant in a lifestyle of sins like the ones described. But Paul calls us to holiness. He calls us to obey the law of God. But he does so by pointing to the change that has take place, taken the place in the heart of every true believer. Obedience, it can only be understood in light of what the Bible calls regeneration or being born again, being made a new creature in Christ, having the old heart of stone taken out of your, your spiritual nature and having a new heart of flesh added to your spiritual nature so that you now have new desires. The old desires are still there, but they are weakened, they are disempowered, and you are given a new nature that no longer is satisfied with the desires of the flesh. In verses 22 and 23, Paul lists the attributes of this new born-again nature that true believers have. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Now again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's an important list of characteristics that you will see increasing in the life of someone who is born again. It's the fruit of a new life which has been implanted within you, a new spiritual life which you didn't have before Christ came to you. you know, the, the list there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, these things are the attitudes and actions that the law of God in the rest of Scripture, teaches. This is how we are to live. These are the attitudes that produce the lifestyle that does keep the law. And this is why the Old Testament writer in Psalm 119 would say, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Because the law no longer condemns as it did when we were in the flesh, but the law is now the, the roadmap, the blueprint for Christ-likeness. And if you have been born again, that is now the love of your life. The love of your life is Jesus Christ. And you want to be like Christ. You want to have the attitudes of Christ as well as the actions of Christ. In other words, you want to keep the law because you love Christ and want to be like him. That's what the new nature is like. And this fall, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at each one of these nine fruit that Paul mentions in these two verses in Galatians 5. We're going to look at them individually. and in other passages of Scripture, they'd elaborate on what these fruit of the Spirit look like. But I think there's significance to the first one in the list. Now, Paul is known for lists. You'll see many lists in Paul's writings. 
Sometimes that list has no, the, the, the order in the list has no significance whatsoever. But many times the order in the list does have significance, and I do believe it has significance here. Because love is listed first. And I do believe that Paul's intention is to say that the love is the most important of these fruit. When Paul wrote, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., he actually uses, if you read that in English, if you read it the way it appears in English, he's, writing, he's using bad grammar. Now, I don't think being inspired of the Holy Spirit necessarily means that you're going to use good English grammar, but I do think he's intentionally breaking or uh, intentionally pointing out something by using a grammar here that's unexpected. He says fruit and then lists nine different fruits. So your assumption is that fruit, you know, the English word fruit is one of those weird words that it's both singular and plural. We'll talk about a piece of fruit or we'll also talk about a basket of fruit and we need both singular and plural and it's really confusing to us. We love to do that with English. But the, in, in the actual Greek language, that's the beauty of the Greek language. It's so much more nuanced and so much more specific the way it communicates. And there, the word fruit there is clearly a singular word. It's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is, that's why the verb is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is, but then gives a list of nine different fruit. And commentators will give you a, a, a variety of reasons for that, but I think the reason is really pretty clear in the context, is that you can't talk about the fruit separately. They must go together. In one sense, they are one entity. They're like a diamond looking at all the different facets from all the different angles. It's, there's one fruit, so to speak, with all these different aspects to it. And for instance, when Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, he'll, you know, that's the way he talks about it, the gifts, plural, of the Spirit, because not all of us have all the gifts. Matter of fact, I don't think anybody has all the gifts of the Spirit. We may have one gift, we may have five gifts, we may have three gifts, but we don't have all of them. And so it's appropriate in Paul's communicating about the gifts of the Spirit to talk about them in the plural. But he says the fruit of the Spirit because the fruit all must hang together. And what I believe that Paul is getting at is that love is what holds them together. I think that because he actually says that elsewhere. Let me take you over for a moment to Colossians chapter 3. Here he lists some of the fruit of the Spirit, not all nine Actually, a list of maybe one or two that are a little different. But he lists fruit of the Spirit in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. But listen to what he says about them. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Then he talks about bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And then in verse 14, he says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so I think what Paul is trying to say is that love is the most important fruit of the Spirit, but in a sense, it is the fruit of the Spirit of which all the other fruit of the Spirit are an expression. They all tie together. They're all harmonized. They're bound together by the fruit of love. Which brings us to 1 John, if you want to flip over there. 1 John chapter 4. Paul, or John wrote his epistle, what we call 1 John. He wrote this letter in order to give 
believers assurance of their salvation. And I think that's an important point we need to make, is that Paul and the other scripture writers expect that assurance of salvation is the normal state of the believer. That we are supposed to be sure of our salvation. That as we walk down the street, as we contemplate stepping in front of a bus and being dying, that we would go to be the Lord, with the Lord. That we are sure of that. There's no doubt of that because of our faith in Christ and our hope in the gospel. That is to be our normal state. We are to live normally in a state of being sure of our salvation because it doesn't depend upon us. It depends on what Christ did for us. But it is just reality that that assurance of salvation, that assurance of being saved, comes and goes in waves, that it ebbs and flows in our lives. And usually it ebbs and flows in relation to the amount of sin in our lives. That when we are living in open, unrepentant sin, we lose assurance. But then if we do belong to the Lord, he always brings us back. He always renews us to repentance. Well, John, as he writes this letter, we, we know that he wrote it mainly to give assurance because he ends the letter with this statement in chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 13. I write these things to you who are born again. I'm sorry, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Paul wrote the letter so that believers may know that they have eternal life. And in order to do this, he actually sets up three tests. They're almost like paternity tests. Ways to know, ways to strengthen your assurance that you know God and therefore you are secure in your relationship with God. The first test is what we would call the doctrinal test. In 1 John, he at length dwells with the fact that there are certain things you must believe in order to believe the true gospel. Do you believe what God has revealed in his word about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done? Do you believe it? Is your doctrine biblical? Do you believe the truth that God has revealed about Jesus and who he is? The second test in 1 John is what we call the moral test. Does your life reflect a growth in obedience to God? Does your life reflect a growth in holiness? And John deals with that moral test. But the third test that he uses in this letter is what we call the social test. Do you love others the way that God first loved you. And in many ways, this is the most important test that John gives in this letter. Because you can believe right doctrine, at least think that you believe all the right doctrine, but if you do not have love, it's worthless. You can be doing lots of good things, but if it's not motivated by love for God based on the love with which he first loved us, then as Paul would say elsewhere, it's like a clanging gong or a cymbal, a crashing cymbal. The greatest of these tests is love. And so I think it's important that we begin our study of the fruit of the Spirit here, just as Paul begins his list there. Because all of these other fruit must be motivated by the love of God. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, John gives us some reasons why we love as born-again believers. We love, first of all, because it's the nature of the God who saved us. Secondly, because it's the way that God saved us. It's the gift of God to us. And thirdly, because it is God's purpose for our lives. Let's look at each one of these individually. First of all, we love because we want to be the like the God. We want to 
share in God's nature, so to speak, in terms of his loving nature. Look at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he concludes that thought by saying, God is love. That's a very familiar phrase from that verse. God is love. That's more than saying that God loves. It's more than saying that God is full of love. It's saying that God is in his very essence, in the very nature of God, he is love. All the other attributes of God that we might talk about, even his justice, even his, his holiness, is a reflection of the love that is his nature. He is perfect love personified. He, therefore, is the source of true love. Think about it. Only the God of the Bible could be love. Of all the other false gods that are worshipped out there in the world or ever have been worshipped out there in the world, only the God of the Bible could the statement be made about him that he is love. It's because only the God of the Bible is three persons in one God. Now, I'm going to ask you to set aside all of your intellectual pride for a moment and say, how can something be true if I can't understand it? We're talking about the nature of the creator of the universe. I was sitting out two nights ago under the stars, watching falling stars, watching the glorious heavens revealed before me, the one who created all of that. That's who we're talking about. So stop trying to figure him out. Just accept what he's revealed about himself to be true. And what he's revealed in his word about himself is something that boggles our mind but is absolutely true is that he is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons. Three persons, persons that are equal in authority and power and essence and yet one God. And if we can just accept that by faith, what we, it unlocks this beautiful truth is that God eternally then is love because there is no greater love in existence than the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father and the love of the Father and the Son for the Spirit. There is no greater love than that and it's existed eternally among the three persons of the Trinity. And so when it says that we are created in the image of God, that was the original intent, that we be loving human beings in the image of God. That's what we've fallen from. God is love. And with the word love there, I have to point it out, even though it may be obvious to those who have been studying Scripture for a long time, the word love is a very significant word. In English, another, I mean, I, English is not a terrible language. There's a lot worse ones out there. But one of the things, there are a number of things about English that frustrate me. And one of the things that frustrates me most is that the most important word in the universe, we have one word for it, love. You know, love. We, we love chocolate and we love our wife. You know, come on. There's a big difference between the way I love chocolate and the way I love my wife. Big difference between the way I love my children or my grandchildren and the way I love the pirates. You know, but we only have one word for all those things. But in Greek, it's a, again a very nuanced language and they have many words for love. And the word that's used here is, of course, that distinctly godlike love that we call agape love. That's what the word is in Greek, agape. It is 
the way that the New Testament writers, the way they appropriated that word in their writings was to only use it primarily for the love that God has for us and therefore the love we have for one another. It's the kind of love that comes from the very nature of God. God is agape. It is a love that is uncaused by anything outside of itself. It is a love that is therefore unconditional. It is a love that does not depend upon the object of that love being worthy or lovable. It is a love that you will not find in this fallen world. You can only find it in God. Agape love. And so in a very real sense, that agape love that the New Testament teaches, that is the spiritual paternity test. It is the DNA of God because it's his nature. The overall DNA of God is love. And so if you want to know if you've been born of God, if you're a child of God by grace, then look for that DNA in your own nature. Look for that spiritual nature of love. Have you been born again? Well, do you love like God loves? That's how you can know. Only believers do acts of kindness because they love God and love others like he does. Only those who are true believers who have been born again of the Holy Spirit know that kind of love that wants to see other people prosper even if we get no benefit from it whatsoever. That want to see others benefited in the eyes of God. Maybe not their own eyes. That's why we Christians will sometimes do for others and serve others in ways they don't want to be served. Because they have selfish desires. They have sinful desires. And we're not going to give them what they want because that's not loving them from God's perspective. That's not prospering them from God's perspective. We want to help others the way that God would help them. And to be used of God to serve others in that way. Unbelievers don't know how to love like that. At the very root of it, those who don't know God, those who are unregenerate, those who have not been born again of the Spirit, do things for selfish reasons, if they truly knew their own heart. They call what they do love, but it's not really love. Yes, they, I know many unbelievers who don't know Christ, who are good parents by outward observation who give to charities, who do kind things for their neighbors. I've even heard of unbelievers who have actually sacrificed their lives in order to save the lives of other people. It's not that they're incapable of doing things like that. What I'm saying is that if you don't know God and you don't have this spiritual DNA in your heart because you've been born again, then ultimately at the very root of it, even sacrificing your life to save somebody else's life is done for a selfish purpose. Maybe it's because you don't want to feel guilty for not having done what seemed to be the right thing. Maybe it's to leave a legacy for, you know, who knows what your motives be, but it's always for the unbeliever, it's always about me. It's about self-exaltation, about what's for my good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can deliver our bodies up to be burned but have not love. He's saying the exact same thing. You can actually sacrifice your life, but do so not for the kind of love that the Bible talks about, but the kind of love that the world knows, which is ultimately self-centered and selfish. When I was growing up, and there was a centerpiece, it was a basket on the uh, dining room table, and my mom put plastic fruit in there. And they were 
from a mile away, obviously plastic fruit. I mean, the paint had kind of worn off of them. They, they had, you know, the little uh, plug in the end where you could see that where they finished off the plastic. I mean, it, was, it had been around for years. It was all beat up. Nothing about it was appealing to my eyes. I had no, never looked at that fruit and thought, wow, I'd love to take a bite out of that. And I think, you know, that's what the world's fruit looks like to God. It's empty. It's tasteless. It's fake. It's imitation. It's not real. Jesus talked about this kind of love over in John chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6. That's the background of what he says here when he says, if you love those, this is chapter, uh, chapter, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? He's talking about the world's kind of love. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. He's saying there's a kind of love that's ultimately self-centered that has nothing to do with his kingdom. It's not the kind of love that he came to bring. Unbelievers are motivated ultimately by selfishness and self-exaltation. Or maybe they're motivated by fear to do what appears to be loving. A fear of being rejected. A fear of not being in the right crowd. Whatever. But the kind of love that Christ came to bring is a love that only does for others for their good without any concern for yourself. That's the love of God. The second reason that John gives for why we love one another is that we love because of God's gift to us. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Only believers understand what it is to love others motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Only believers understand what it is to love others because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It says, God sent his only son. The word there, only, is what elsewhere is translated only begotten. In other words, his, his unique son. This son who is equal in his divine essence, who he has loved more than anyone else for all eternity. God the Father sent this son, his only son, into the world. And it's not enough that he sent him into the world to take upon himself a human nature and to live among us in the humiliation of, fallen, of the fallen world, but he went to the cross to be a propitiation for us. And we use that word so rarely, I always have to define it. What we mean by propitiation is best understood by looking back at what the ancient pagans meant by propitiation, because the New Testament writers borrowed this from pagan religion. You remember the old ancient pagan religions? What they would do is that they had this idea that the gods were mad because, the, because of tornadoes or storms or flooding or whatever. Obviously, the gods of nature that they sell, that they, the false gods that they worshipped, they were mad at us. And so the way to make these gods happy, to appease their wrath, was to offer some great sacrifice to them, to offer animal sacrifices or to offer uh, costly possessions as sacrifices to the gods or maybe even your virgin daughter to offer her up as a sacrifice to please these gods, to stop them from being mad at us. 
Well, that's the same word. That's propitiation, to appease the wrath of the gods by making a sacrifice. That's the same word that the New Testament writers use, but they turn the idea right upon its head, don't they? They say, you know what God did? God, we have nothing of value to offer to God. We have absolutely nothing to offer to him. We cannot appease his wrath except by suffering in hell for all eternity. The only thing that could appease the wrath of God is if the eternal son of God became man and lived a perfect life, therefore making him a worthy sacrifice to bear the wrath of God in our place, to appease God's wrath by, by suffering in our place on the cross, dying so that we don't have to die. We are propitiated. God is propitiated. We offer up Christ. Christ is our propitiation before God. God's wrath is turned away. He is propitiated and we are reconciled to God. If you have understood that, really understood that in your heart, then you know the love of God. You know the love of God. You say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Anyone who has stood by faith at the foot of the cross of Christ and seen the Son of God being bearing the wrath that your sins deserve and dying in your place, anybody who has been by faith to the foot of that cross, how could you go back and live a selfish life? How could you go back and live to exalt yourself? How could you not, with this new nature that he has given you, want to love God, adore God, worship God forever, to love as he has loved you first? That's what 1 John chapter 3, if you'd go back one chapter to verse 16 of chapter 3, this is what he says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in, not love in word but, or talk, but in deed and in truth. This new nature, this born-again nature that he has given to us as a gift, now knows that kind of love, the love of the cross and wants to show that love to others. A while ago, I came up with this definition of love based on a study of 1 John. It goes like this. Love is finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in God's eyes. That because you now have the love of God in your heart, you actually find your joy and satisfaction in serving your brother and sister, serving others, building them up in faith, meeting their needs, as God sees them, not as they see them necessarily, but as God sees them. Which brings us to the last purpose, the last reason that we love God. It's because the love of God in us, as we experience it and show it to others, completes God's mission in our lives and God ultimately will com complete God's purpose for all of us. In verse 12, it says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The word perfected there doesn't mean that God's love was imperfect. Now it's perfect. What it's saying is it's actually the best English translation that would be completed. God's love is completed in us. In other words, God's love completes its mission, what it was originally intended to do, that as God's love not only saves us through the gift of his son in our place on the cross, through his resurrection, granting to us this new life, 
this childhood in his family, not only does it do that, but as it transforms us, as we begin to love others as we, he has first loved us, it completes its mission. That's what it is to have a ripe fruit of love, is that it now is being expressed to those around us. In Psalm 1, it says that the, the disciple is, he, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. We have a motto here at Oakwood that talks about growing roots deep in God's word, like a, like a tree by the water, growing roots deep in God's word so that we will bear fruit of righteousness and holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, and so that we can branch out to reach others with the gospel. And that's how the love of God is completed, that as we show that love to each other, it is a witness to the world, and as we love the world, we lead them to Christ. Tim Keller sums this up with this comment. He says, the world was made by a God who is a community of persons. He's a trinity. The world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. I mean, Jesus said to us, he couldn't have said it more plainly in talking about the mission of the love of God in our lives. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That kind of supernatural love, in other words, a love that is not part of our old nature, not of anything of this world, this love that has come to us from above, from the Spirit of God, this love, as we express it to one another, is a bold testimony to the world that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God who was raised from the dead and for our sins. The world sees that because we have this love that the world cannot know or understand. We have it for one another. I have to address in closing the one question that I'm sure we all struggle with in this. If this is fruit, I mean, I understand the idea of the works of the flesh because that's what the flesh does. It works to gain acceptance. It works to get what it wants. This idea of the fruit of the Spirit, well then, why, doesn't these, why, why don't all these fruit, but especially love, why doesn't it just kind of happen? You know, if it, if, you know how does this not get us back into legalism? I mean, is that, is that how we're going to end looking at each one of these fruit every week by me saying, hey, you guys go down there, grit your teeth, get your hands dirty, work harder, try harder, be more loving, be more patient, be more joyful, be more, more gentle. If that's the message you come away from, either we've preached it badly or you've listened badly, one or the other, because that's not what the Word of God teaches. Word of God, this is going to be a key verse, I think, as we work through this study of the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good purpose. This is that mystery we're going to be exploring for weeks now, is that yes, in order to be more loving, to be more good, to be more gentle, to be more patient, we need to work at it. It's painful work. I mean, you're not very lovable people a lot of times. It's work for me to love you. It's painful for me to love you sometimes. That's absolutely true. But you know what? If the Spirit of God had not given me new birth, I wouldn't want to love you. Or if I did anything that appeared loving to you, it would only be for my own purposes and my own exaltation. I need to work, just like a farmer needs to, to work hard to till the soil and to water it and to fertilize it and to nurture the growth and to weed it and do all these things. Yes, it's work, but the life does not come from the farmer. 
The ability to produce fruit in a tree does not come from the one tending the tree. It comes from God. And the spiritual fruit, God will work in you as you trust him more. Just like salvation, salvation comes by faith. We must trust in Christ in order to be saved. That trust doesn't stop when we're saved. That trust must continue for the rest of our lives. That faith must continue. We are sanctified by faith as well. We are sanctified by trusting in Christ as he works in us to produce these fruit. In John chapter 15, I think another passage we're bound to come back to. But listen to what Jesus says there in John 15, beginning in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Skipping down to verse 8. For by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You see, abiding in Christ is the key to being fruitful. That's not working in the flesh. That's abiding in Christ. It's relational. It's drawing near to him. And yes, there are things you must do in order to draw near to Christ. You must be in the word. You must be people of prayer. You must be regularly in the fellowship of God's people and under the discipline of the church. These are things that you must do in order to nurture this growth, but the growth is not coming from within you. The growth is coming from the Spirit of God as he creates new desires in you. See, that's the work of grace of God. He creates new desires in you and then satisfies those desires as you pursue holiness in his name. Let's pray. Father, this is an ominous task that we take on to study these characteristics which to us as we read that list seem so foreign. Still so much of our lives is dictated and colored by our old desires and our old nature. But Lord, you have given us a new heart. And Lord, this new heart desires to love you. It desires to be near you. It desires to be like you. It desires to serve you and to lead others to you. Lord, I pray that through these studies of the fruit of the Spirit, we will learn what it means to abide in Christ so that we can bear these fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.